Chapter Twenty of The Valley of Silent Men. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Valley of Silent Men by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty. It was that hour when, with clear skies, the gray northern dawn would have been breaking faintly over the eastern forests. Kent found the darkness more fog-like. About him was a grayer, ghostlier sort of gloom. But he could not see the water under his feet, nor could he see the rail of the scow or the river. From the stern, ten feet from the cabin door, the cabin itself was swallowed up and invisible. With the steady, swinging motion of the riverman he began bailing. So regular became his movements that they ran in a sort of rhythmic accompaniment to his thoughts. The monotonous splash, splash, splash of the outflung pails of water assumed, after a few minutes, the character of a mechanical thing. He could smell the nearness of the shore. Even in the rain, the tang of cedar and balsam came to him faintly. But it was the river that impressed itself most upon his senses. It seemed to him, as the minutes passed, like a living thing. He could hear it gurgling and playing under the end of the scow. And with that sound there was another and more indescribable thing, the tremble of it, the pulse of it, the thrill of it in the impenetrable gloom, the life of it as it swept on in a slow and mighty flood between its wilderness walls. Kent had always said, You can hear the river's heartbeat if you know how to listen for it. And he heard it now. He felt it. The rain could not beat it out, nor could the splash of the water he was throwing overboard drown it, and the darkness could not hide it from the vision that was burning like a living coal within him. Always it was the river that had given him consolation in times of loneliness. For him it had grown into a thing with a soul, a thing that personified hope, courage, comradeship, everything that was big and great in final achievement. And tonight, for he still thought of the darkness as night, the soul of it seemed whispering to him a sort of paean. He could not lose. That was the thought that filled him. Never had his pulse beat with greater assurance. Never had a more positive sense of the inevitable possessed him. It was inconceivable, he thought, even to fear the possibility of being taken by the police. He was more than a man fighting for his freedom alone, more than an individual struggling for the right to exist, a thing vastly more priceless than either freedom or life, if they were to be accepted alone, waited for him in the little cabin, shut in by its sea of darkness. And ahead of them lay their world. He emphasized that. Their world. The world which, in an elusive and unreal sort of way, had been a part of his dreams all his life. In that world they would shut themselves in. No one would ever find them. And the glory of the sun and the stars and God's open country would be with them always. Marette was the very heart of that reality which impinged itself upon him now. He did not worry about what it was she would tell him tomorrow or day after tomorrow. He believed that it was then, 
when she had told him what there was to tell and he still reached out his arms to her, that she would have come into those arms. And he knew that nothing that might have happened in Kedsty's room would keep his arms from reaching to her. Such was his faith, potent as the mighty flood hidden in the gray ghost gloom of approaching dawn. Yet he did not expect to win easily. As he worked, his mind swept up and down the three rivers from the landing to Fort Simpson, and mentally he pictured the situations that might arise and how he would triumph over them. He figured that the man at barracks would not enter Kedsty's bungalow until noon at the earliest. The police gasoline launch would probably set out on a river search soon after. By mid-afternoon, the scow would have a fifty-mile start. Before darkness came again, they would be through the death chute, where Follette and La Doucere swam their mad race for the love of a girl. And not many miles below the chute was a swampy country where he could hide the scow. Then they would start overland, west and north. Given until another sunset, and they would be safe. This was what he expected. But if it came to fighting, he would fight. The rain had slackened to a thin drizzle by the time he finished his bailing. The aroma of cedar and balsam came up to him more clearly, and he heard more distinctly the murmuring surge of the river. He tapped again at the door of the cabin, and Marette answered him. The fire had burned down to a bed of glowing coals when he entered. Again he fell on his knees and took off his dripping slicker. The girl greeted him from the berth. "'You look like a great bear, Jeems.' There was a glad, welcoming note in her voice. He laughed and drew the stool beside her and managed to sit on it, the roof compelling him to bend his head over a little. "'I feel like an elephant in a bird cage,' he replied. "'Are you comfortable, little gray goose?' "'Yes. But you, Jeems, you're wet.' but so happy that I don't feel it, Gray Goose. He could make her out only dimly there in the darkness of the berth. Her face was a pale shadow, and she had loosened her damp hair so that the warmth and dry air might reach it more easily. Kent wondered if she could hear the beating of his heart. He forgot the fire, and the darkness grew thicker. He could no longer see the pale outline of her face, and he drew back a little, possessed by the thought that it was sacrilegious to bend nearer to her like a thief in that gloom. She sensed his movement, and her hand reached to him and lay lightly with its fingertips touching his arm. "'Jeems,' she said softly, "'I'm not sorry now that I came up to Cardigan's place that day when you thought you were dying. I wasn't wrong. You are different.' and I made fun of you then, and laughed at you, because I knew that you were not going to die. Will you forgive me?" He laughed happily. "'It's funny how little things work out sometimes,' he said. "'Wasn't a king lost once upon a time because some fellow didn't have a horseshoe? Anyway, I knew of a man whose life was saved because of a broken pipe stem. And you came to me, and I'm here with you now, because—' "'Of what?' she whispered. "'Because of something that happened a long time ago,' he said. 
something you wouldn't dream could have anything to do with you or with me. Shall I tell you about it, Marette? Her fingers pressed slightly upon his arm. Yes. Of course, it's a story of the police, he began, and I won't mention this fellow's name. You may think of him as that red-headed O'Connor if you want to, but I don't say that it was he. He was a constable in the service and had been away north looking up some Indians who were brewing an intoxicating liquor from roots. That was six years ago, and he caught something. Le Mont Rouge, we sometimes call it, the Red Death, or smallpox. And he was alone when the fever knocked him down, three hundred miles from anywhere. His Indian ran away at the first sign of it, and he had just time to get up his tent before he was flat on his back. I won't try to tell you of the days he went through. It was a living death. And he would have died, there is no doubt of it, if it hadn't been for a stranger who came along. He was a white man. Mahet, it doesn't take a great deal of nerve to go up against a man with a gun when you've got a gun of your own, and it doesn't take such a lot of nerve to go into battle when a thousand others are going with you. But it does take nerve to face what that stranger faced. And the sick man was nothing to him. He went into that tent and nursed the other back to life. Then the sickness got him, and for ten weeks those two were together, each fighting to save the other's life, and they won out. But the glory of it was with the stranger. He was going west. The constable was going south. They shook hands and parted. Marette's fingers tightened on Kent's arm, and Kent went on. And the constable never forgot, Grey Goose. He wanted the day to come when he might repay. And the time came. It was years later, and it worked out in a curious way. A man was murdered. And the constable, who had become a sergeant now, had talked with the dead man only a little while before he was killed. Returning for something he had forgotten, it was the sergeant who found him dead. Very shortly afterward, a man was arrested. There was blood on his clothing. The evidence was convincing, deadly. And this man... Kent paused, and in the darkness, Marette's hand crept down his arm to his hand, and her fingers closed around it. "'Was the man you lied to save?' she whispered. "'Yes. When the half-breed's bullet got me, I thought it was a good chance to repay Sandy McTrigger for what he did for me in that tent years before. But it wasn't heroic. It wasn't even brave. I thought I was going to die and that I was risking nothing. And then there came a soft, joyous little laugh from where her head lay on the pillow. And all the time you were lying so splendidly. Jeems, I knew, she cried. I knew that you didn't kill Barkley, and I knew that you weren't going to die, and I knew what happened in that tent ten years ago. And, Jeems, Jeems, she raised herself from the pillow. Her breath was coming a little excitedly. Both her hands, instead of one, were gripping his hand now. I knew that you didn't kill John Barkley, she repeated, and Sandy McTrigger didn't kill him. 
But— He didn't, she interrupted him almost fiercely. He was innocent, as innocent as you were. Jeems, I— Jeems, I know who killed Barkley. Oh, I know, I know. A choking sob came into her throat, and then she added, in a voice which she was straining to make calm, "'Don't think I haven't faith in you, because I can't tell you more now, Jeems,' she said. "'You will understand quite soon. When we are safe from the police, I shall tell you. I shall keep nothing from you then. I shall tell you about Barclay and Kedsty, everything. But I can't now. It won't be long. When you tell me we are safe, I shall believe you. And then—' She withdrew her hands from his and dropped back on her pillow. "'And then what?' he asked, leaning far over. "'You may not like me, Jeems.' "'I love you,' he whispered. "'Nothing in the world can stop my loving you. "'Even if I tell you, soon, that I killed Barclay?' "'No, you would be lying.' "'Or—' If I told you that I killed Kedsty? No matter what you said, or what proof there might be back there, I would not believe you. She was silent, and then, Jeems. Yes, Niska, little goddess. I'm going to tell you something now. He waited. It is going to shock you, Jeems. He felt her arms reaching up. Her two hands touched his shoulders. "'Are you listening?' "'Yes, I am listening.' "'Because I'm not going to say it very loud.' And then she whispered, "'Jeems, I love you.'" End of chapter 20 Recording by Roger Moline